will open your Bibles to John chapter 7 this morning. John chapter 7. As we continue on in Jesus' ministry in the temple during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Pick up the story in verse 31 for our consideration this morning. Let's back up to verse 30 and be reminded of where we ended last week. Because of all that Jesus is saying. So they were seeking to seize him, John 7.30. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray this morning that by your grace, by your grace alone, that the responses we see among these people would never be the responses of anyone who is here this morning. May our responses be one of faith in your Son. Father, faith that is only possible by the revealing of truth from your word, the convincing of men's hearts by your spirit, and the gift of grace that enables us to believe. And so, Father, I ask that you would bestow that upon everyone here, that those who believe would keep believing, and that those who have never believed would come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Son, as the Savior for mankind. Bless the preaching of your word now. Make it clear through the ministry of your spirit as he illumines our mind and guides our thoughts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 30, we see the beginning of an exposure to three groups of people that are involved in the sad rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Edward Klink helpfully points out in defining these groups by saying there are three. There is, first of all, those who seek Jesus in verse 30, and yet they cannot lay hold of him. They have tried, and they have failed. Secondly, there are those who have heard Jesus, but cannot truly believe what he's saying. And then thirdly, there are those who cannot arrest Jesus even though they try. Now, in every one of these accounts, there is both a sad and sobering message for each of us. Sad and sober in the way that they interact with Jesus and 
As you see this morning as the text unfolds itself before us, I pray and have prayed and you're hearing even already this morning that these characteristics would never be true of any of us. As they ultimately lead to a rejection of Jesus Christ for who he is now, each in their own way, certainly. But unbelief can take many forms. Belief takes only one form. And so there are many ways in which Jesus is rejected. And and my prayer is that Jesus would never be rejected by any of us in any of these ways or any other way not mentioned. Because there is salvation in no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. There is no hope of salvation apart from Jesus Christ and the Jesus as he reveals himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. He is not a construct of our imagination. We may not imagine Jesus to be what we would like him to be or to say what we hoped he might say and expect that somehow as we construct the narrative, that there would be salvation in that narrative. There is salvation only in Christ. And as Christ reveals himself. So I want you to see with me this morning in verses 31 to 36, that there are two revelations that occur about Jesus and the people that surround him. The first revelation this morning is a revelation of rejection. Now, a quick and superficial reading of verse 31 might lead us to believe that there are people in the presence of Jesus who accept him. That, That these people have come to some sort of faith in Jesus. Notice what they say. But many of the crowd believed in him. Now, we might look at that and we might say, This is great news. There are many who have believed in Jesus. And there are certain of the people, in all likelihood, if you go back to verse 27, who are the many in this crowd? The many who appear to have believed. Many, the many who appear to be coming near to Jesus. And yet they are people who are still characterized by unbelief, just as they were in verse 27. And so in this revelation of rejection, there are two, again, two categories of people. May we be found in neither of these. There are those whose rejection is one of what we might call soft unbelief. That's kind of become a new term in our day, in our age, when when you don't want to make a bold stand against something and you're really saying the opposite. We just say, well, it's soft belief. In reality, it is really unbelief. But these people don't appear to be hardened. They don't appear to be critical of Jesus in the way that others are. They seem to be espousing a faith, but it is not a faith that is genuine. 
D.A. Carson says of these people in verse 31 that their faith is based on signs and is not strongly encouraged. Their faith in Jesus, notice what they say, they are focused on his signs that he has performed. These people, again, don't seem hostile to Jesus, but neither do they seem accepting of Jesus. Only his signs and wonders. They're they're laser focused not on the teaching of Jesus, not on the, the, the core and the substance of Jesus being who he is, but on the things that Jesus does. And may I say to all of us this morning to be very wary of any faith that is predicated or built upon what Jesus does for us before it is based on who Jesus is to us. This is very evident. They want to know when the Messiah comes, would he be able to do more signs than Jesus has done? Because if there is, by implication, one who could do more signs and wonders than Jesus, then he would be the Messiah, not Jesus. This is to make Jesus, in his person and in his revelation and everything that he has taught, provisional. Provisional. For those of you men who indulge or rather maybe torture yourself with a game of golf from time to time, there is something known as a provisional shot. You hit a shot and, you know, at least if you play by Fairchild rules, you're not really sure where that shot went. And so you drop another ball and you hit that ball. You call it your provisional ball. And that is your ball. So long as you don't get down the fairway and find that you actually hit a better shot. In which case it is no longer your ball. That one is your ball. It's like they're treating Jesus as some kind of provisional. He is to be accepted so long as nothing better comes along. That should be accepted. This is not saving faith. This is not genuine faith. In fact, it is blasphemous faith looking to jesus for his signs and wonders and were someone to come along and work more signs and wonders than certainly their allegiance to him as messiah would be given this is nothing more than casual infatuation it is soft unbelief if you will It is at best speculation that there is potential in Jesus, but might be more potential in someone else. And and unless we're simply being overcritical here, we need to examine the spirit in which they deliver their remark. Notice down at the end of verse 31. When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man, You remember last week, uh, going back to previous discussions, it is a derogatory statement to call Jesus that man or this man. Here they're using still that same language, that that in, in pondering what it is to believe in Jesus, they are still not referring to him by name or by divine title. He is simply still here in the text, simply that man. Just this random guy. And this is problematic. 
It is problematic in that they have focused on the signs. The the root of salvation is not the signs, but is the man. Not simply that man. He, He is not one among many. He is singular and exclusive. Signs aside, that they need to focus on the man. Not simply a man, which they are doing by their own admission. That they've missed the very source of salvation. And brothers and sisters, friends who are here, that is equally possible for us to do. To focus on everything for salvation except the very source of it, which is Christ himself. Not the church, not your profession, not anything else, but Christ and Christ alone is the source of our salvation. Jesus saves nothing else. Jesus saves not the feeding of 5,000. Jesus saves. There are no other works that can be done that save. This is where the Roman Catholic Church, this being Reformation Sunday, a bit of church history, but this is where the Roman Catholic Church has erred. Just one example of this is their Belief in the miracle, the sign, if you will, of transubstantiation in their mass. We said it in Sunday school with the adults. By the working of the works, ex opera operata. By the working of the works, this miracle, this sign happens. And by the sign, you're saved. No sign has ever saved. Only a savior has ever saved only the person of Jesus Christ and he is not merely that man he is the man the Christ the very son of God the heart of their question is demonstrated as Edward Clink says by saying this the person and work of Jesus are eclipsed by a messianic delusion, but by, by an infatuation, by all, of the, all that surrounds Jesus, but, but not Jesus himself. Again, we need to be very careful that our Christianity is not predicated on all that surrounds and is part of Christianity, and yet is absent of the core of Christianity, who is Christ Jesus himself must train our minds to distinguish between those things. I'm sure some of these people were were quite well-intentioned, maybe not the Pharisees and the court police, as we will see in a moment, but, but some of these people no doubt are sincere in what they're thinking, but they are still sincerely wrong. And we need to train our minds not to become confused, not to become enamored with all of the accoutrements of Christianity and lose sight of the Christ of Christianity. To know Him, Paul says, and the power of His resurrection, counting everything but loss for that one thing. To know Christ 
to see Christ, to trust in Christ, and to trust in Christ alone. These people, no doubt, are fueled by curiosity. They have seen what Jesus is capable of doing. That would be something, wouldn't it? To see 5,000 people fed, to see in in, in the background of their mind the the healing of that lame man from John chapter 5 that is still fueling the controversy here in chapter 7. They have seen that and they, they simply want to know if this provisional Messiah comes, could we expect even more? I'll embarrass one of my children, but I won't name them. One of the boys, when we were, when they were small, we had taken a, just a quick little family vacation, and we took the boys out for ice cream. This is pre-Julianne. The boys were both quite small, and we took them to an ice cream shop, and the clerk is there helping us and dishing out the ice cream, and one of our boys slipped off kind of by himself and we noticed that he had gone up to the counter and we had told the boys that they could get two scoops of ice cream and he looked up at her with those little eyes and said excuse me ma'am do you know how to do three <laughs> it's as if these people are saying you've done some Could Messiah do more? Never satisfied by what they had already seen, which is proof enough that Jesus is who he says he is. They are dissatisfied by deity. Imagine that. You are dissatisfied with God. I want more. I need more. Maybe with Messiah comes, he would even do more than this man. We're amused by what you've done, but we are not satisfied with what you've said. What a dangerous position to be in. What a toxic spiritual cocktail they are drinking. Their only hope is the man. Their only hope is the teaching that he has given. Nothing that he does, nothing that surrounds him, not even anything coming out of him, but the man himself that he has proclaimed. But they are not having it. They have rejected Christ as the hope of salvation. Their response, though it is excited and though it seems encouraging, even sincere, is still misplaced. They're looking for signs. They're looking for proof. They're looking for all the bells and smells, as it were. But we need to remember this, that the salvation Jesus Christ came to bring cannot be found anywhere except in the person who brings it. It's not in the beauty of the church. It's not in the ceremony of the church. It is not in even the sacraments of the church, even though they point us back to him. They are not in the taking of those things themselves. 
They are in Christ. Period. Full stop. Though it may appear to be real and convincing faith that these people have, it is not. They have missed the man being enamored with a sign. That is the soft unbelief. Now look at verse 32. We begin to see a revelation of rejection in hardened unbelief. I want you to notice the Pharisees' reaction to these people. The Pharisees, verse 32, heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize, seize him. This is strange on many levels. Throughout the gospel thus far, John's gospel that is, the sound of murmuring has never been a characteristic of faith. Going all the way back to chapter 2 when Jesus is at the temple and he has gone through that first cleansing of the temple and he knows what is in the heart of men and they are murmuring about him. On and on through the gospel there is murmuring in hushed tones and even growing louder tones in chapter 6. But they're never expressive of true faith. So here the Pharisees, not Jesus this time, but the Pharisees hear the murmuring of the crowd. And they are threatened. These people are talking about Jesus, and they're coming dangerously close to following him. And so they take this informal poll from the hushed tones of the errant faith of these people, and they form what has to be one of the strangest alliances that one could find in the history of the world. It may not appear to us at first blush that this is much, but there are two warring factions here who are disturbed by the muttering and the ruminations of the crowd. The Pharisees overhear the crowd. Now, why would it be the Pharisees that oversee the crowd? Just a quick background lesson that you need to be aware of. There is a vast difference in the Pharisees And another group of people who ruled Israel in that day, known as the Sadducees, among whom the chief priests were part. These two groups were at odds with one another. You can think of it probably in our day best by looking to the nation of England. There are two classes of rulers, essentially. There is the nobility into which you are born. And then there is the parliament to which you are elected as a member of the people. The Pharisees are the more populous group. They are in tune with the people. They rub shoulders with the people. They are out and about mucking it up with the people. They are a political body more than they are a religious body. They are politicians, if you will. And so they do what politicians do. They go around and they listen for what people want. They lick their finger. They stick it up in the air. They take poles. They kiss babies and steal their candy. This is the Pharisees. And they're out among the people. And as they are among the people, they hear this muttering. 
And in hearing the muttering, notice what they do. They go to the chief priests. They go to the aristocracy. They go to the elitists. They go to the chief priests, most likely the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, spiritually speaking. And they say, we know that you all stay up in your ivory towers and you may not be aware of this. But there's a great muttering going on among the people. Now, I know we have our differences, but it's time we lay those aside for a common purpose of stopping that man. It's in our interest. It is in your interest. The Pharisees, eager to do it from a political standpoint. The Sanhedrin and the chief priest, eager to do it from a spiritual standpoint. No matter how often these two groups find themselves at odds over minutia, when it comes to a hatred for Christ, they are more than willing to lay those things aside, to unify themselves, to heal any past fissures, and silence the truth. This has always been the case for the true church, the true followers of Christ often find vitriolic enemies against one another, unite themselves in order to silence the truth. And so notice what they do. Their action is strong. They don't censure him. They don't place a restraining order upon him. They go and they call the officers. The word in the Greek literally means the temple guard, the the temple police that were employed by the Sanhedrin to keep order around the temple. These are the enforcer. These are the goons, if you will, that enforce their very unjust system of religion. And so the Pharisees and their adversaries, the chief priests, get together and they call the officers to go and seize him. This is strong and decisive action that goes all the way up to the point of killing Jesus. They have not yet called for that, even though we know according to chapter 5, this is exactly their intent. They want Jesus dead. More on that in just a moment. Suffice it to say that the natural hatred of lost men for Jesus looks exactly like this. Kill him. Silence him. That's why the world is content with cultural Christianity, but not biblical Christianity. The Christ of Scripture brings great conviction. It brings a line in the sand. You must choose him or choose death. You must follow Christ or follow the way of death. This is the power of man's depravity that is so total over him that he is unable to move in the right direction towards a right conclusion about Jesus. No matter how much he has seen, no matter how much he has heard, unless Jesus is drawing them, they live in unbelief, whether it is soft or hard. 
unless Jesus draws them, which he spent the, a great deal of time in chapter 6 saying that unless my Father draws you, you cannot come. Not only will you not come, you won't even want to come. You, you will not desire these things. And so we see it playing out in the lives of both the commoner, naive as they may be, and the spiritual leaders who want to kill Jesus. You're here this morning and you say, well, I don't find myself necessarily in one of these two camps. May I lovingly and kindly say to you that unless you are believing Jesus, you are rejecting Jesus. You are either for him or you are against him. There is no soft, neutral unbelief. We must shed every form of unbelief of which there are infinite numbers of and come to faith in Christ alone so that you might live. Everything else will lead you to death. Only God can move the sinner's heart. And so if your heart is found desiring Jesus as he has revealed himself in scripture, desiring to believe, then be sure of this, God has moved on you. God has planted that desire. It is not a natural desire. And only God's movement will overcome the total depravity and unbelief of sinners. And so there is a revelation of rejection. Notice, secondly, there is a revelation of sovereignty here in this text. Beginning in verse 33, Jesus speaks up. He says, for a little while longer I am with you, then... Then I go to him who sent me. That just throws more gasoline on the lantern of truth. And it goes from being a small flame to a bonfire. I am going back to the one who sent me. Meaning the Father, they are clear on what Jesus says when he refers to the one who sent him. That's why they want to kill him. You will seek me and will not find me, he says, and where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus, in the rest of this account in chapter 7, with these Jewish people and their leaders, asserts his absolute sovereignty over his life and theirs. Notice what I said, Jesus, for the rest of his discussion in this chapter, will emphasize his absolute sovereignty over his life. Oh, yes, and by the way, over your life. Verse 33, Jesus demonstrates himself as the sovereign God, as reflected in the timing. They have sought to seize him. And Jesus utters these words, For a little while longer I am with you. Now get this scene in your mind. I think we, we again read this with, with too little imagination sometimes. They have just called whom? Who, who have the Pharisees and the chief priests just gone to in order to seize Jesus? Who? 
The temple guard, the temple police, where are they? In the temple. Jesus, in essence, to put it in our understanding, is in the police station. Surrounded by police who have a strong desire and now even a command from their leaders to seize Jesus so that they might kill Jesus. And Jesus stands in the midst of them and he says, you know, I'm not quite done here. And so for a little while longer, I'm going to stay right where I am. Do what? You heard me. For a little while longer, I'm here. I don't know what that scene looked like. All I can imagine in my mind are these old, you know, really hokey movies where there's the invisible whatever and people are running trying to get and they just keep hitting it and bouncing off. I don't know if that's what it looks like, but they cannot arrest Jesus. Why? I'm not finished. I'll show you who's king here. I'll be finished when I'm finished. And you'll know it when I'm finished. Because then, and only then, will you be allowed to touch me. Jesus demonstrates his sovereignty. They will not touch him until he determines it's time. He will initiate the events that will see him taken, crucified, risen, and ascended back to his father's side. Notice how particular he is with his words. A little while longer I am with you. Then I am going to him who sent me. Bad news number two. We can't take him and we can't stop him. Not only is he telling us he's going to stay for as long as he wants to, he is telling us that after we take him, we may do whatever we choose, but he will ascend back to his father. We are not going to kill him. That in itself is proof that they don't understand he's God. Because the only person you can't kill is God or the one in whose life God's life dwells. So that means us too, brothers and sisters. You can hurt us, but you can never kill us. If Christ is in us, God cannot be ended. God cannot be silenced. Jesus will say in Luke 19.40 that all of creation itself will cry out. To proclaim his glory. What God has created and intends to do cannot by any means at any time be stopped. Amazing. Gordon Cuddy in his commentary says this. It was the conceit of the enemies of the gospel that by killing Jesus and later his followers that they could terminate their influence in the world. But they could only cut off what was visible above the ground. The root would remain to sprout with new life. What they believe to be murder, what they intend to be murder, is God's divinely decreed plan to bring Jesus back to himself. 
where he will rule and reign in total sovereignty someday for all the world to see. That's why in Isaiah 53, when we read that passage and we understand and read it uh, through the through the, I believe, proper context of that, that is referring to the to the Jewish people in eternity, or, or I'm sorry, in time future when they look on him whom they have pierced. And they understand they have pierced the sovereign one. And they cry out and they lament for what they have done. What they believe to be murder is only advancing God's plan. How sovereign is God? Even the most heinous sin of men will be used in God's hand to advance his cause. They're doing Jesus a favor. They think they're going to silence him. Oh, no. And not only will they not silence him, but by killing him, he as the first fruits is planted and he becomes the firstborn among many brethren, raised from the dead, raised to life, raised to the father. They will only multiply God's intended effect, not stop it. Things are going from bad to worse for them. Even though they see it as moving from bad to worse for Jesus. They are robbed of accurate sight because of their unbelief. Theirs will be the only death stemming from what they do to Jesus, not Jesus. And his will be the only life, as is those who follow him, from what they will do. What a destructive plan. The second act of sovereignty comes when Jesus declares that not only will he stay, but he will not be found. You know, there may be no more haunting words in the history of this world than to say, you will seek me and will not find me. Like those outside of the ark pounding on the ark, To be let in. You will not find an open door. If you reject Christ now. There will be no finding him in the future. And at that point all the evidence as to who he is and what he came to do will be clear. But it will be too late. To come to him in saving faith. On that day. All of their attempts to find him in a saving manner will fail. And that is what he is being very clear about. Their desire at that point to come to where he is will remain unfulfilled and cannot be changed. At the point when the life that is in Christ is desired, death will be the only option for them who have refused to believe. He will shut the door of salvation to them. That is why Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
John Calvin wrote, Hence, let us learn what we ought to receive, Christ without delay, while he is still present with us, that the opportunity of enjoying him may not pass away from us. For if the door be once shut, it will be vain for us to try to open it. Jesus says, where I'm going, you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. What a tragic reality. What an opposite reality from what he tells his disciples. If you go forward to John chapter 14. Lord, where are you going? Well, you can't come yet. I, I go to prepare a mansion for you. A place for you. That where I am, you may be also. How opposite Jesus' words to those who believe and those who reject. And this is followed in verse 35 and verse 36 by a tragic response. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? You see the the foolishness and the ignorance with which they speak here. People have looked at this in two different ways. And I'm not entirely convinced that it's not a little of both. That the people do speak in ignorance. If, if they are sincere, they wonder where Jesus might be going that he would escape their ability to find him. Okay, well, I guess if he goes to the Hellenized regions that surround Israel where there are Jewish people who are more Greek than Jews. And by the way, we don't really do much with them. You know, yeah, they're distant cousins, but we don't really claim them. Yeah, maybe he's going there, but we're not going there. We don't go to unclean territory. Uh, Jews would not go to Samaria. They would not go to the diaspora in Caesarea Philippi and other regions. These are pious Jews in Jerusalem. Maybe he's talking about that area. He knows we won't go there. Which reveals their sinful prejudices. Those Greek Gentiles. He going to go teach them? And now we see the second view of this, that perhaps they're mocking Jesus. He going to go teach the Greeks? Maybe he'll go teach the wise since he's so wise. Other than that, we can't imagine what he would be speaking of. But in reality, we know what he's speaking of. He's going to his heavenly father. He is ascending to the place of majesty and power yet again. And these people can't see it. Because they can't see him for who he is. And they mock his statement. What is the statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean by that? How sad to be so blinded by unbelief. What a lack of faith. They cannot comprehend that they are in mortal danger. 
danger faced by every human being born apart from Christ and who remains in this danger until he surrenders himself to Christ in simple faith. Turning from sin, turning from everything else, and only running to Jesus. Jesus lays it down. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. There is a place you need to be, and yet, apart from me, you will not be. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you in relation to Jesus, the Messiah, this morning? Are you looking at his works? Are you looking at the proofs? Are you looking at the benefits that come from what it appears to you to be to follow Jesus? Are you looking at all the accoutrements of Christianity? The fellowship that we enjoy together as a church body? So, yeah, you know, I, I, I'd like all of that. But I'm really not sure about this Jesus. Today is the day to be sure of Jesus. To seek him while he may be found. Not anything else, not signs, not benefits. Draw near to Christ now that you may be with him where he is or reject him now and never be able to come to where he is. Those are the only options that Jesus gives us. So dear friend, will you believe in Jesus as he reveals himself? Will you forsake everything else that is going to send you to eternal punishment in hell and run to Christ? Or will you hang on like these proud people to traditions that will only damn you? To surface things that will never save you? No, run to Christ. He is the only name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of your son, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are exceedingly clear. May we, by your grace and your grace alone, avoid unbelief. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would draw those who have never trusted Christ never trusted you as their Savior. Draw them to you this morning. Give them faith to believe. Change them so that they might come to Christ and live and not be blinded in their unbelief until it is a point and time where they cannot find Him and they cannot go to Him. Draw to Jesus, Holy Spirit. Convict men of their sin and women of their sin, children of their sin. That they must have the forgiveness of Christ that he alone can bring. And cause them to flee to him. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Amen.